Welcome to another episode of the Souvenirs Podcast. Honestly, I don't know where to begin with this introduction. This guy is truly a one-of-a-kind cowboy. You can call him a naturalist in many forms, a natural storyteller, singer, songwriter, and nature enthusiast. He's been a fixture at the ranch for decades. He implemented their nature program and continues to lead guests through the desert, sharing his vast knowledge of this unique ecosystem. As if that's not impressive enough, you can also find him picking and grinning on stage in the saloon. And if you've been listening to this podcast, you've heard his music playing in the background. Yep, right there, that's him picking the banjo on his original song, Annie's Waltz, a song he wrote for his wife. Anyone who's been to the ranch, you know who I'm talking about. It's the one, the only, Dick Fredrickson. So without further ado, here we go. Good morning, Dick. Good morning, Susan. Let's begin with, where are you from originally? Born in Chicago, uh, 1943. Uh, My dad was in the South Pacific when I was born. I would have never been given the name I was given, um, because the Navy censor cut out all the names that my dad suggested out of a letter that he sent my mom, thinking he was disclosing secrets. (laughs) So my mom named her after a kid that she had had in school, mom taught school up in Evanston, Illinois. Um, After the war, we were very fortunate. I was very fortunate. A privileged child, I'm sure, because my folks had a summer place up in Door County, Wisconsin, where when school let out, Mom and I would spend our summers. Mom was off. I was off. And summers were longer in those days. So we spent our summers up there. We eventually moved up to Skokie, Illinois, Spent a few years in Skokie, and then um, my dad had the opportunity to take a sales position with the same company he was working for. It was a Myricord decal company. Took a sales position based in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. So we moved there just prior to my sophomore year in high school. So I graduated from high school out in Excelsior, Minnesota, Minnetonka High School. And then I attended... uh, and graduated from Bethel College in St. Paul, Minnesota. I spent five years as an undergraduate. Never could quite figure out what I was going to do. Still didn't know. Still don't know. Um, Spent a year in graduate school. Actually, graduate theological seminary. Um, When we went in for interest tests as graduating seniors from college, we were supposed to have limited our, our interests down to maybe a couple of items. Uh, we took those tests as incoming freshmen, then we were supposed to take them as, as departing seniors. I had still six categories in the top. Highest was as a performing musician, which the, the uh, dean of students who talked to all, our, all the seniors asked me what I really wanted to do with my life. If I had to do it today, I'd reached over the desk and punched him. Um, because of those summers that I spent up in Door County, and we continued to go there right on through my high school years and even into college years. Um, I really kind of lived in the woods, had several friends, family friends. Um, Harold Wilson was a nationally, even internationally known amateur, quote-unquote amateur, ornithologist. So I got to do some bird banding with him. We used to band herring gulls out in Green Bay, out in the water Green Bay. 
I spent two summers up there working for the Neville Public Museum in Green Bay doing archaeological field work, which uh, I also ended up, after I started college at Bethel, I spent two summers up at Grand Portage Indian Reservation uh, doing field archaeology for the Arizona Historical Society. I ended up there initially as, a, uh, as part of a student project that was sort of like a domestic Peace Corps. They had brought a, brought a number of us from different colleges to go to three or four reservations in Minnesota. We were supposed to be helping those kids. I learned more than they ever learned from me, I think. The Grand Portage Reservation was uh, reputed by the anthropologists that visited with us before we left on this mission. Um, was reported to be the, the most acculturated and, and none of the old traditions were probably left. Well, that wasn't true, I discovered. Even the kids uh, that I was working with, we took a hike up uh, Mount Rose, <laughs> big hill there in the reservation. I did a hike with these kids and they were pointing out to me the various plants that their grandma was using for medicine. Of course, nobody had any of their traditions still alive, you know. Uh, I started playing a lot of music in school, traveled to the West Coast with a, a, a male chorus from college, but after that, I devoted myself, aside from my studies, we had a little folk music group that we played, and we played all over the Midwest. Uh, I actually ended up working for the Minnesota Program Service, and we did high school assemblies around Minnesota and even into the Dakotas. We did some community concerts. But I was on a, on a bit of a short leash. It was the middle of the Vietnam War. Like I say, I had been in theological seminary. I was raised on movies of the Nuremberg Trials and saw how German soldiers and officers accounted for their activities and their atrocities by the fact that they were ordered to do things. Um, I was raised to be responsible for my own actions. That was part of my family tradition, very strong family tradition. Um, I dated a girl in college who was uh, family, part of her family had been Holocaust survivors. She insisted that I was a conscience objector. And my dad, having served in the Navy during the Second World War, I insisted I was a patriot, and I was not one of those conscience objector people. Um, but through a, a number of circumstances, one of them was because I had to take an Army physical when I was initially uh, given a 1A status on my selective service after college. Um, I had to take an army physical. It's one of the things that convinced me that, that they didn't need me. I could better serve my country as a, as a conscientious objector, which I ended up doing uh, most of my time out in California. This was after my touring with the Minnesota Program Service. Um, I worked as a probation officer most of the time as my alternative service. So when I stayed within the selective service system, I was actually, I had been initially brought in, 
I had gone to work for Goodwill Industries, and they had a work-study program for juvenile offenders. And the county uh, probation department coordinated with the selective service up in Sacramento to get me to work a half a day for them and transport those kids morning and afternoon for their, for their work study at the, at the Goodwill. It wasn't too long after I started that, and I met her months, very few months, that the chief probation officer went up to Sacramento and said, we want him full-time, and I became a full-time probation officer. Uh, I did not have a caseload. I worked with another officer with the juveniles. I was uh, fully certified, though. I had... I was deputized, I had arrest powers, the whole nine yards. But because I was a conscientious objector, they were able to pay me less money. <laughs> Didn't let it bother me too much because I ended up playing with a bluegrass band and made a little. It was a very joyful time for me in lots of ways. On the other hand, while I was there, there were five people that I had become acquainted with through the probation or through my music who were murdered, two who committed suicide. But it was while I was at the probation department that I first heard about Wickenburg, Arizona. The school teacher at the probation department talked about dude ranches in Arizona. Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> After my service obligation was fulfilled, and in fact, I stayed with the, I stayed with the probation department well after my uh, obligation was fulfilled. But I did go back to Minnesota to my folks, spent a year back there working for Schmidt Music downtown Minneapolis. But um, the year I had returned to Minnesota, the leaves had left the trees in September, which was very unusual. I didn't see another leaf until May. And after those years in green California, I decided to head west. And I remembered about Wickenburg, Arizona. So I started contacting dude ranches down here in Arizona. And I went to work initially down in the White Sulphur Springs Valley, or Sulphur Springs Valley, excuse me, not White Sulphur, Sulphur Springs Valley, and worked on a ranch out of Elfrida, Arizona. Again, something that turned into a disaster after I had left there. The owner and one of the cowboys that had mentored me were murdered. I was like the friend that you didn't want to have for a while. I ended up taking a job with a ranch out of Oracle, Arizona, where I started out working for their dude operation, then transferred over to their cattle operation, was stuck out on a dry camp out on the backside of the ranch, ran into to, uh, uh, the closest town at the YC, YMCA to get a shower, um, got tired of that, went back into Tucson, played music for almost a year, when that job petered out, which is the nature of music business, feast or famine, I took a tour around Arizona looking for singing jobs. I ended up in Wickenburg talking to Rusty here at Los Caballeros. I talked to Vi Wellick. Uh, I, was, I ended up playing music up at uh, Riata Pass. Vi Wellick came up there to hear me play and then offered me a job in her corrals she got a twofer. She got her entertainment and a, and a cowboy. I knew how to shoe horses. I had learned how to shoe horses when I was cowboying out of Oracle. So that was a little benefit to her and to me. After, I guess I supervised 
for corrals. I worked one year without being supervisor, then I supervised the corrals for two more years. Met my wife up in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, in Wilson, Wyoming. Again, I was cowboying and met her when I was playing music for a neighbor cookout, neighbor guest ranch cookout. When we got married, I was committed to going into the full-time cowboy business and worked out of Winslow and then out of the down along the Mexican border and up in Oregon, southeast Oregon. Came back to Jackson area, where again I supervised the corral operation and played music. Uh, came down to Wickenburg in the wintertime, worked for Ben's Saddlery Building Saddles, went to work for the Wickenburg Inn for a year, and then ended up here at Los Caballeros in 1983, I really wanted to get the cattle operation here. That's what I wanted to do. Rusty would never let me look at the books until Tommy Higgins was ready to retire. And when Tommy Higgins retired, which was coincidental with my having had enough health issues, digestive issues, that I had to, stress-related, by the way, that I had to step down from the running the corrals. I kept down in the corrals, but I stepped down at the same time Tommy retired, I finally got to see the books, knew that I could not survive <laughs> on the deal that Tommy had with the ranch. Because Tommy was on Social Security. That was the only thing that kept him going. Uh, worked for the corrals. Um, actually, by that time, I had supervised the corrals for several years. I stepped down for three years, came back and worked for the corrals for eight more years. In ch running the corrals. I spent a total of 16 years in the corral operation. And was those last years, I had been hustling for a nature program because ultimately with all those interests that I said I had, I had a degree in biology and a minor in anthropology. I thought the ranch ought to have a nature program and I'd hustled Rusty for that. Spent, I think, about 10 of the 16 years I spent in the corrals trying to talk Rusty into a nature program, full-time nature program. Uh, the last couple of years I was in charge of the corrals, he let me do some nature stuff officially, and then came and met me up in Wyoming in the summertime where we were spending our summers out of Dubois, came and met me and offered me the opportunity to do a full-time nature program. That's 24 years now. Um, didn't tell me that I was going to take about a 30, 35% hit in my wages. <laughs> Little detail. But I have certainly been happy with the nature program, been happy to be able to do that. I think I inherited a teaching gene from my mom because I really enjoy sharing what I know about the desert with our guests. Rusty was very gracious when we started the program. I said, you know, I've been making a point to learn as much as I can about the desert, but I said I haven't done it officially. So I said, I'm not going to be able to not do some studying during the time that I'm working, officially working. And he said, sure, that's fine. You don't have to be doing a hike or a bird watch all the time. You can do some studying. So I had developed some friendships with the people at the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum. I got some got a little mentoring from some of them. I'm a bibliophile. I have an incredibly large library, and I've made a point of studying hard. I know I don't know all the answers to the desert stuff, but I know I, I, there's a Spanish proverb that I love. 
Translated, it means, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And so I know I know, don't know everything about the desert, but I know more than our guests do. <laughs> so I'm able to help them with that. How has the nature program changed over the years? The one thing that's happened is that my hikes have gotten shorter because I have more and more things to talk about and I don't make as big a circle anymore. The nature program initially, um, people didn't know about it. And so initially it, it kind of worked out that I had time to study because I didn't always have participants. But as the program has gone on, I've certainly when the ranch is busy, I'm busy with people going out. And I think the thing that has changed, and this had happened before that now 24 years that I've had this program, our guests that came here in the early days, it was after the Second World War, TV and movie theaters were full of cowboy stories. People came here and wanted to play cowboy. They wanted to go for a horseback ride, go yippee-yay across the desert. I saw the changes as I was here. First of all, a lack of riding skill, uh, increasingly over the years. But I did see an increase in people being interested in what they were seeing and what was out there in the desert, rather than just the yippee attitude. And so that was a one way that the nature program was able to, to grow, was that people were, in fact, interested and wanting to learn what was going on out there. For a lot of people, depending on where they've come from, not necessarily out of the States, you know, they didn't have to have come from Europe or Asia. Uh, they could have come from almost anywhere in the United States. And coming to the desert is in so many ways like coming to a different planet. It really is. The environment is so different than people are used to. And the desert works differently. Plants and animals have to adapt to this environment in such a way that are kind of curious. People are surprised at what some of the plants and animals are able to do. Uh, because of this environment. I think that has been a gradual change, you know, the increasing, I think an increasing interest in what's going on. How has the desert changed? Well, regrettably, we, you know, when I first came to the Wickenburg area, um, our weather patterns were relatively predictable. We seem to have, uh, in general, a kind of 11-year cycles, 10, 11-year cycles of wet and dry. I know that I arrived in Wickenburg at near by several years, near the end of one of those wet and dry cycles. And it was, it was a wet cycle that I had come. And so the desert was, I mean, I saw a lot of rain in the desert in those days. And I saw a lot of plant growth. And animal populations had expanded during the, that time. I remember going out on, on horseback rides where we might, in the springtime, be able to, to uh, see a half a dozen active either hawk or owl nests. And now I'm lucky to see one of each, just because now with 23 years of drought, and regrettably, I'm afraid it's going to get drier and drier. In fact, I'm convinced it's going to get drier and drier. Um, we've had a, almost an aggressive decline in, in bird and animal populations. I was very thankful for the rains that we had this past summer, even though I wasn't here. And the desert doesn't look too bad right now. But if you look around, what I saw last spring is kind of camouflaged now by the amount of green that we've got. But there's lots of death out in the desert. 
There are lots of the, the cactus that have died. A lot of the choyas have died. All the plants and animals are adapted for drought conditions. They are. But there's a limit to how much they can take. And so, particularly last spring, there were areas that looked like a war zone with so many dead plants. And our members of the pea family, the, the mesquites, the acacias, the palaverdes, all have the ability, I think other trees in, around the country have this ability too, but we see it more in the desert. They have the ability to drop branches, to cut off the water supply to branches, just to preserve the core of the plant. And there's a lot of dead branches on mesquite trees out there right now. So that's something that I've seen as a change from being a, a time here in Wickenburg where, where I thought we had a fair abundance of water. In fact, based on the old criteria for what makes a desert, which was 10 inches of water or less a year, we weren't even by that criteria desert. I have at the Nature Center a, a, a chart of precipitation in Wickenburg that averaged for over 60 years of over 11 inches of precipitation a year. By the old standards, we weren't even a desert. Well, we were a desert, but we've changed the criteria today. It was a surprisingly verdant place a lot of the time, and now it's not. What was your first impression when you arrived coming from back east? What was your impression of the desert? Well, I first got to visit here. I'd been working at, on the entertainment crew at a Young Life ranch up in Colorado, and I hitched a ride on a bus down to, down to Phoenix, Scottsdale, and I guess I had seen enough pictures that I wasn't necessarily surprised at the, at the look of the country. Actually, all the way back to, to Door County, Wisconsin, the uh, librarian in the little town of Ephraim where we were uh, had known my, about my interest in Indians, and the library had a subscription to Arizona Highways. And she knew how much I was interested in Indians because I probably had checked out all the Indian books. So any Arizona Highways magazine that had anything to do with Indians, when she had to call her Arizona Highways magazines, they always went to me. So I had seen lots of pictures. So that part didn't surprise me. I think the thing that surprises other people the most when they come here is how mountainous we are and actually how much vegetation we actually do have. Um, like I said, I'd had a pretty good introduction from Arizona Highways, so I was less surprised. But I know that our guests are often surprised, expecting sand and rattlesnakes and just barrenness, and they're surprised, particularly here in this subdivision of the Sonoran Desert, which is the most statistically most well-watered and has the highest uh, plant and animal diversity of all the subdivisions of the Sonoran Desert. So would you say you're still learning about the desert? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. All the time. In fact, I tell people not to be afraid to ask me questions. If I have an answer, I will give it to them. If I don't have an answer, I will try to learn, what the, <laughs> learn about it. I mean, and even this summer, being away from the desert, I learned some things about how we look at the seasons. So I learned something about the seasons, which doesn't absolutely apply to the desert, but it applies to what I know now about how seasons work. We have at least three different measures of how seasons work, one of them quite unique to the desert. We have five seasons in the desert, as opposed to the four that we normally think about. Expand on that. Well, we have astronomical seasons, which is the things when we talk about equinoxes and solstices. 
and that's based on the sun cycle. So we have a, about the 21st of December. That's, that's winter solstice. Spring, or vernal equinox, occurs around uh, March 19th, 20th, 21st. Summer solstice, about the 21st of June. Autumnal equinox, on the, around the 21st of September. But then there's meteorological seasons, which just basically divides the year into quarters. So winter begins in December. So you, December, January, February is winter. March, April, May is spring. June, July, August is summer. September, October, November is autumn by the meteorological. But then, of course, we have the weirdness of the Sonoran Desert, where we have five seasons. And our uh, winter basically begins around Thanksgiving and ends about the middle of February. From about the middle of February till, till tax time, middle of April, is our spring. Then the way we get five seasons is we have two summers. We have dry summer that begins the middle of April, runs until about July, when we really don't want it to rain. Um, then the monsoon season, or wet summer, begins along about the beginning of July, runs till about the middle of September, although it can run into October easily. And then the middle of September till about Thanksgiving is our fall. Now, the, the reason that's, that that dry summer is so important is because we, we have a lot of uh, flowering trees, all the, all the members of the pea family, the mesquites, the acacias, the paliverdes, all blossom at that time. Our um, yuccas all blossom at that time. And rains can damage those blossoms. Now, I used to think, this is something I've learned in the last few years, I used to think that it was because they could actually knock the blossoms off the trees, a heavy rain. And I'm sure that's possible. But more significant is that rain, when these flowers are full of pollen, it will wash the pollen out of the flowers. And then the pollination can't take place. So it's the one time of year, like I say, the middle of April till around the 1st of July, we really don't want it to rain. We, I'm happy for rain any other time. <laughs> and we do have two seasons of rain. We have, we have a summer rains, our monsoon season, and then we have winter rains, which can usually bring in in November, often around Thanksgiving, which is just delightful for our guests, and runs right on um, into February sometimes. I know the gold rush days, at least when I first came to Wickenburg, we were always threatened by rain around gold rush days. Those years we had either minor or major flooding on the Hacienda River during gold rush days. I remember when I was working for the Flying E, Vi Wellick, we don't know what connection she had, but if we had rain just before the Saturday parade, if it was raining that week, she would tell us it will not be raining on the parade. And one year I watched a storm that was coming and had been here, actually backed off to the west on Saturday. We had a sunny day for our Saturday parade, and then the storm came back in on Sunday. I don't know what kind of influence she had. So about your musical background, you're still playing music today. Yep. What is your role currently at the ranch? Like I say, I, I do my nature program six days a week. And this is going to change a little bit now in November. I have been playing 
every Wednesday and Saturday night for the last several years. In fact, Wednesday nights for about 15 years. And then a few years ago, I started, uh, Caroline and I were alternating on Saturday night. And then she basically gave up her Saturday night, so I was doing Wednesdays and Saturdays, which I love. Again, and I hope that lasts through all, all through the season. Because, and, and how to put this in appropriate words, I like my naturalist job very, very much. I love my naturalist job, maybe even. But I kind of live to play music. Are you surprised at this stage in your career of the passion for music, the passion for nature, how it's come to this is your career and has been for quite a while? I guess what I'm still surprised at is that as old as I am, that I'm still able to do these things, that I'm still as enthusiastic about the nature program, which I am, and of course, I consider myself so fortunate that my fingers still work, I can still play the instruments, and that I can still sing. In fact, I don't want to wave my flag too much, but I think my voice is about as good as it's ever been when I'm singing. Um, but the summer of 2005, I guess it would have been, I had a uh, inflammation of a flexor tendon in my index finger of my left hand and I couldn't play. And that was pretty devastating to me. A couple of doctors saw me and didn't come up with an answer initially. I did go see a hand specialist down here, and he gave me what basically were cortisone injections into that and said, this might come, first of all, he, he thinks it'll be, it, he thinks it'll fix it. He said, it's a possibility that it'll come back, but it might not ever be a problem again. I have been so fortunate that it has not come back. I know what to do if it comes back this time. But I kind of promised myself, if I got my hands back, that I would work more aggressively at my instrumentation. I figured I couldn't do much about my voice. But maybe I could get better at playing my instruments. And so um, I believe I have. I started aggressively learning to play my mandolin. I have just purchased a full-size acoustic bass that I'm learning how to play. It's just the music, the music is still exciting to me and, and, and I still want to learn as much as I can. There seems to be an early influence of Native American culture in your life. Can you tell me about that? Oh, I know that one of the influences was certainly that my dad had a Navy buddy who was an Indian from over in, uh, Indian guy from over in Michigan. I think it was Menominee. I'm not sure. Regrettably, Pete had the curse, what I call the curse, and uh, was troubled with alcoholism. And I got to meet Pete when I was pretty young. Dad, my dad rescued him a few times in Chicago. But I had a picture, still have a picture of his dad. My folks both had, I don't know the full extent of it, but they were both interested in Indians. And so my reading or having been read books about Indians as a, as a little kid uh, was encouraged by my, by my folks. 
when we were still in Chicago. In fact, that was actually, I guess it was, must have started when we were still at my grandparents' home on the north side of Chicago, but it was certainly true when we were out in Skokie. And this would never happen today. I would hop a bus in Skokie and go to downtown Chicago to the Natural History Museum, the Field Museum, and I would haunt, literally haunt, the Indian exhibits down there. Here I was, I was a nine-year-old kid, and I was allowed to do that on my own. I'd ride the bus and then ride the L downtown, all on my own, just to visit the museum. My folks took me to museums, to several reservations when I was a kid. They were enthusiastic about encouraging my interest in Indians. I remember as a kid, there was a, there was a TV show called The $64,000 Question. And somebody that was on there was on there for, I, I don't know how it worked exactly, but they were supposed to answer questions about, about Indians, Native Americans, if you wish. I don't use the term. Um, and we had just gotten TV. <laughs> and I could answer all the questions when I was 9, 10 years old, whatever it was. So my folks knew that there was something going on there, you know. So, I, again, I'm so lucky that I was encouraged by my folks to follow a passion. Do you think that led you into a relationship with nature? Absolutely. Absolutely. I was intrigued by how Indians made use of their environment, whether it was animals or plants, you know, things for food, things for building their houses, whatever. I was, uh, in fact, if it hadn't been for that little thing called the Vietnam War that jumped up and got in everybody's way for a while. Um, yeah, and I'd, I don't want to get too political about that. It would have been a statistical probability that I might have gone to the uh, I think the University of New Mexico, where they had a program in ethnobotany, a graduate program in ethnobotany, where the study was focused on use of basically plants by Native Americans. I think I might have pursued that. How has technology affected your role at the ranch? Um, I didn't have a smartphone when I started the nature program. <laughs> I've been surprised at the way... Uh, People are able to sign up for things. A lot of that was done on a, on a direct kind of personal basis, and it's not being done that way anymore. For me personally, in the nature program, I finally got a smartphone when I was up in Pipestone. This was before we bought a house up there, which we've now done in uh, summer of 21. But I talked the naturalist, the biologist, at the Pipestone National Monument to take a walk with me around the monument and point out some of the plants. They should have been familiar to me, but they were, it was like 50 years since I'd been studying the plants in Minnesota. And he took me out, and when he was stumped, he pulled out his phone and had an had a app on the phone called uh, iNaturalist, and he took a picture of something and got an answer in relatively short time about what the plant was. And I said, okay, i got to have me a smartphone just because of that. And that has really made a difference here because I have learned most of the plants through book. And so it's been a real help to me, although most of the plants that I see are still, I'm still able to identify from the studying I've done over the years. But when I get stumped, I've got my I've got my cell phone. I've got my magic cell phone with, with that app on it. I've actually got 
three nature apps. There's one called Seek that is connected to iNaturalist, which is really good. And then I have uh, Merlin, which is from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And it, in the last year, that now you are able to turn that app on, when you hear a particular bird song, it will record the song and identify the bird from its song. So that kind of technology was, well, I, I am so old that that just never existed. And it wasn't even, wasn't even a thought of mine that that could be done. I mean, I knew about bird recordings a long time ago. I think all, maybe all the way back to high school, I knew there were people making recordings of birds, and I have, a, I have an Audubon record, vinyls, of, of bird songs that I've had forever. But you certainly couldn't take that out in the field. And if you played it, you'd have to have an idea kind of what kind of bird, you, what general kind of bird was out there. And you'd have to let it run through a couple different species before you heard the right one. So that's all, it's all pretty amazing to me. It's all pretty amazing. So in your 40-year career here at the ranch, how has the ranch changed? Oh, uh, we've certainly become more corporate. That's one thing. Um, we had more families when I first came here that had been really long-time guests. We still have some more. Of the, we still have some of those kind of guests, but we had more of our clientele were were long-time guests of either us, old Ramuda guests that had come over to us or people that had been guests out at Castle Hot Springs who came to us, particularly after Castle Hot Springs had to fire and quit taking any guests. A number of those families, particularly the elders of those families, would come out here and spend, not just a few of them, would spend at least a month at a time, sometimes several months at a time. And, and regrettably, a lot of those, and they were dear folks, in lots of ways. They were, they were very dear, dear folks. We worked hard to make them happy because we knew that they were, they were playing in the last quarter. And it was important to us to see to it that they had a really good time while they were here, as best as they could. I had one couple that came, and she couldn't ride a horse anymore. Rusty would loan me his Jeep and I would take her for, we weren't doing Jeep, they weren't, we weren't having a separate Jeep tour, but I would take her out on some of the back, back roads and we would look at things and I would, do, I would give her a private Jeep tour. One of the things that we've also lost in that is that some of those families, without a doubt, were, were very well to do. And it was grandma and grandpa who were paying for the families to come. And a lot of times grandma and grandpa came, or grandpa was gone, or grandma was gone, and she was still paying for the family. When she passed, it became more difficult for some of those families to continue to come because the, the wealth had been more widely dispersed after the death of the, the matriarch or the patriarch, and it became difficult for them to come and spend the kind of money that grandma and grandpa had been willing to spend. So that's, that's, been the, that's been a big change. And another change, I know when I first came to work here, we had a couple of, one old cowboy that I remember very well, 
talked about the changes that he had seen in working here and how he had seen the diminishment of riding skills among our guests. At that point, that's 40 years ago, that there was a diminishment in their riding skills. I mean, when these guest ranches started, uh, you know, they really had a heyday in the 1950s, I think, in the early 60s. Many people that came as guests had aunts or uncle, aunts and uncles or grandparents that, that had a connection to agriculture. They had a farm, maybe they had a ranch. People that came had some idea about the difference in the psychology between a dog and a horse. Uh, that one's a prey animal, one's a predator. Uh, but this old cowboy pointed out to me the diminishment in riding skill that he had seen. And of course now, after being here 40 years, I've seen a diminishment in the skills that I saw 40 years ago. And, and the idea that, that our guests have any connection to agriculture is almost gone. The vast majority of our guests are, don't have an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent that has any connection to agriculture or, or animals. They have a, maybe a cat or a dog or a cockatoo, I don't you know. All the more important, the value of the nature program. I think so. I think it makes, it makes introducing people to the natural world. I think being in the natural world is really important to our well-being. As a species, we didn't grow up in cities. We didn't grow up watching TV or being on our, on our computers all the time. We had varying degrees of connection to nature. I know that we've, we've lost the majority of that today. You know, during the pandemic, a lot of people all of a sudden started, because they could go out and be by themselves in nature, sort of made a re little bit of a rediscovery of nature. That's great. I think that may help my nature program a little bit, that people maybe do want to get out a little bit and maybe want to not only get out, but while they're getting out, learn a little bit about what they're seeing. Because like I said, they've come to a different planet. And how has these past 40 years working at the ranch changed you? Hmm. Well, the one thing prominent was that I came to work here hoping to get the cattle operation. I'm really glad that I didn't. Um, I'd have starved to death doing that, and I might not have had the opportunity to play as much music as I am now, and I certainly wouldn't have had the nature program like I do now. How has it changed me? Um, it's, I think it's all part of the aging process. I like to think that I've become a little bit more patient about some things. I know I'm not patient about other things. I hate to see people doing dumb things, and I can't, I can't get past that. There's no cure for stupid. <laughs> but I think I've learned to accept people where they are a little better than maybe I did once upon a time. But I think that's not... I don't know that that's because I work here. Maybe on the one hand, because of the many, many interactions that I have with people that has helped me be more tolerant of people that I might have blown off once upon a time. Uh, I know that I did learn early on that if I had people who were sort of unhappy with their initial experience here, that I would be not so they could notice. <laughs> I would be diplomatically aggressive about changing their minds about the experience they'd had. I, I wouldn't have just said, oh, well, they're, they're 
They're jerks. They're turkeys, and I'm not going to, you know, I have learned to, to try to cultivate some of that uh, discouragement or unhappiness that they've had and uh, try to turn it around a little bit. doesn't always work. Thank you, Dick. Thank you for your stories. Thank you for your service here at the ranch. You're very welcome. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Souvenirs Podcast. We appreciate all your support. If you haven't already, please subscribe and follow so you don't miss an episode. You can also head over to the Souvenirs Podcast website and sign up for our newsletter to stay in the loop on all the latest souvenir news. Thanks for tuning in. Till next time. Souvenirs Podcast is produced by Susie Miner. Background music written and performed by you know who. Play us out, Dick Fredrickson.